Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along We've got the great good fortune to welcome back to Spirit in Action Steve Chase, a guest I've had on twice before. Steve has a few decades of experience teaching and organizing in the field of peace, justice, and environmentalism, including his latest job with ICNC, the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. His work at Antioch University, New England, as founding program director of their Advocacy for Social Justice and Sustainability master's program for 12 years, was foundational, giving him tools and insights into transformative work all over the globe. We have him here today to talk about one thread of that global work, and it concerns the festering issues surrounding Palestine and Israel. Steve has written a pamphlet, only 30 pages, but with years of knowledge and insight, called Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights. As we speak with Steve, I think you'll see why understanding his journey, his change in perspective, is so important in advancing discussions on finding a way forward about the Middle East. Steve Chase joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Steve, it's been five years. Welcome back again to Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. So I first talked to you back in 2008. Activating the activists was the topic back when you were working at Antioch still. 2012, it was the transition movement that we were talking about. You're deeply steeped. I mean, from your time at Antioch when you were working as advocacy of social justice and sustainability as the director for that, when you were teaching that, and your time now with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. Clearly, nonviolent conflict, alternative ways of bringing about change are big to you. How does that dovetail with the Pendle Hill pamphlet that you produced on boycott, divestment, and sanctions? That's a great question because you're right. There's been this running thread. I mean, I, in my job interview at ICNC, I told them the story about when I was 12 and visiting my grandfather, who was a pretty crazed anti-Semitic right-wing racist. I mean, he was he was loving to me in many ways, but his political viewpoints were horrific. And I was reading Gandhi's autobiography, and he just came in and saw what I was reading and was yelling and screaming at me. So Gandhian nonviolence has been a recurring threat through all my life and all the decades. So that's very, very true. I came to writing this pamphlet on boycott, divestments, and sanctions, which is a movement that was called for by civil society within Palestine. And it had like over 170 groups in the call. The call was for feeling the need to create an international nonviolent response initiative and campaign modeled somewhat after the divestment campaign, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign 
against South African apartheid that was a powerful component of the movement against it. So BDS called on international civil society to do something similar that would get the state of Israel to support the human rights of Palestinians and abide by international law through the means of doing nonviolent direct action in the forms of boycotts and divestments and using those tools to try to create a just peace in Israel-Palestine. Now, it's pretty controversial. There's Zionist groups in Israel and the United States that have called it anti-Semitic, but many people draw a distinction between anti-Semitism, which is hatred or discrimination against people of the Jewish faith, versus we don't think it's fair to call anyone who criticizes policies of Israel, which are violating human rights, anti-Semitic. That that just seems like a political use of a term and that it sort of cheapens the concern against the very real anti-Semitism that has existed and continues to exist. But some people have said what they find most interesting about the pamphlet is that it's not just an argument for supporting the BDS movement, but it tells the sort of spiritual and political journey from my being a youngster up until today of at one point being an extremely ardent Zionist to becoming increasingly disillusioned about Zionism and Israel policy towards the Palestinians over time and now coming to the point where I now do support the BDS movement and have become an active supporter of a group called Jewish Voice for Peace, as well as being active in the Quaker Palestine Israel Network, which also supports BDS and is trying to achieve a just peace. There has been anti-Semitic currents throughout so much of the world for so long. Yeah. I think in a fair addressing of the issues, we have to start with how important addressing that bias is, was. I mean, I don't really know in the U.S. how many people would have been thought of as anti-Jewish. I mean, in where you grew up in Illinois, mm-hmm. small town Illinois, how common was that kind of prejudice? Yeah, we had one synagogue in town, and several of my friends went to that synagogue. But you would hear the sort of name-calling and epitaphs and stereotyping where I grew up. And it's something that I really dislike. One of the stories I tell early on in the pamphlet is the first time I heard the word Holocaust. I think I was around six or seven years old. All I could tell by the context of how the word was used, that it was something really horrible, but I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. So I went home and I asked my mom what the Holocaust was. And she sat me down on the back porch and we just sat there and talked for hours that day. And I just, I think now about what it would be like to be a parent where, you know, your six-year-old child or seven-year-old child goes, what's the Holocaust? (laughs) The choice is telling the truth and crushing your child's spirit because of the huge evil of the Holocaust or sort of distracting or even sort of lying, not telling the truth. And my mom found a middle path that she definitely told me the truth. And it was pretty horrific about 11 and 12 million people being killed in the camp, 6 million of them being Jews. 
she talked about anti-Semitism, how the German people, many of whom actively supported the Nazi party, but that many others didn't particularly support it, but they just stayed quiet. They went along to get along. That cooperation and that acquiescence allowed the Nazi regime to engage in what it called the final solution and not just discriminating or despising or dispossessing Jews in Germany and Europe, but actually going to full-on a campaign of genocide. So she told me all this, and I was feeling crushed. You know, it's like in my little town in Illinois, it was hard to imagine that level of evil. To think that human beings could even be capable of such behavior was heartbreaking to me. But then she also told me a story about when the Nazis took over and occupied Denmark, that her remembering of the story that she had heard was that when the Nazis came in and said, okay, the Jews had those armbands of Star of David on their clothing, and then the non-Jewish Danes didn't have to. And here was a way of like trying to separate the Danish people and stimulate anti-Semitism and creating the category of endangered and relatively secure. The way my mom told the story, and for a long time I thought this was historically accurate, but she told the story that hundreds of thousands of Gentiles sewed the armbands on their own clothing as a non-cooperation with the Nazi decree saying we will not allow the Danish people to be divided. And she said that the Danish king also wore the armband. And so in the moment of telling me of the horrors of the Holocaust, she also gave me a picture of human beings at their best, of not being afraid to act in solidarity with each other, to support justice and to oppose tyranny and genocide. It it was just kind of remarkable to me that in my young childhood, just getting those intense pictures of the range of human behavior. So that laid the groundwork, I think, for me becoming a Zionist in my teens. And it was followed up by watching the movie Exodus, which was, at the time, a whole lot of people who were relatively indifferent to Zionism became Zionist supporters. It had a big impact culturally. And I think the third thing that cemented my commitment to the state of Israel and the Zionist project of creating a a Jewish state in Palestine was that my hero, my activist hero at the time of when I became a Quaker when I was 13, I heard of a guy named Bayard Rustin, who was an African-American Quaker who had been a key advisor to King from the Montgomery bus boycott on through and was the key organizer of the March on Washington in 1963. Bayard was an ardent Zionist and supporter of the state of Israel and and said that anybody who criticized the state of Israel was being anti-Semitic. And I so appreciated where he was on war issues and appreciated where he was on civil rights that I just took it for granted that he must be right about this situation in Israel and that any criticism about impinging on Palestinian rights was likely untrue and merely an example of anti-Semitism. So it's, I'd say those three sources 
made me, as a Gentile kid in small town Illinois, very self-consciously committed to Zionism and sort of Israel right or wrong and neglectful. It's like I just wouldn't listen to stuff about Palestinian rights because I thought it was completely motivated by anti-Semitism. And I look back on that now and I understand that position, but I also think it's profoundly inadequate and morally wrong. You know, Steve, I think it's really important to specify what is Zionism. We need the historical context to be able to address this properly. And again, folks, Steve Chase spells a lot of this out in this short pamphlet. It's really a quick, easy read with a whole lot of important information, including not only the facts, so to speak, but the motivations that pull us in various directions. The pamphlet is called Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights by Steve Chase. It's a what's called a Pendle Hill pamphlet. I'll have a link to the source so you can get that if you want. And again, it's a quick read. Steve, again, Zionism, what is it? That is a great question. And there's some ways it's easy to answer and there's some ways that it's difficult to answer. But in the late 1800s, a small movement formed of mostly secular European Jews who were feeling hopeless about anti-Semitism ever being diminished in Europe and that it would just be a perennial problem. And there was sort of a feeling like, well, if we could find a place where Jews could be in the majority, that it would be a place that could be safe from vicious anti-Semitism. And even, you know, this is long before the Holocaust, but already Jews in Europe are experiencing discrimination, but also extermination in the pogroms in Eastern Europe. So there was this emergent sense that the path of Jewish liberation involves creating a state. And at first, Argentina was looked at, some rural parts of Argentina. Uganda was looked at as a place that they could maybe take part of the territory. And then Israel, given sort of the traditional that most Jews in Europe at the time were diaspora Jews from like 2,000 years ago where the Roman Empire broke a Jewish state in parts of Israel and sent people out as refugees. So there was this huge pull. That was sort of the early things of Zionism is just hopelessness that anti-Semitism would ever end and a sense that the only way forward was to create a state, probably in Palestine. So that was the big push. Now, most Jews at the time were non-Zionists, that they thought that there were other ways to achieve Jewish liberation. But this was a small but growing movement with European Jews. And at the time, you you know, at the late 1800s, early 1900s, this was a period where ethno-nationalist thinking was all around the Jews of Europe. And imperialism and sort of, a, you know, racism were all in the mix of the Gentile culture around them. And so some of this Jewish liberation got mixed up with all of that. And so even in the early days, there was anti-Arab racism that was involved in Zionism. There was this sense of being a colonial settler state and taking over and that the, the human rights of the Palestinians weren't as worthy of consideration as the human rights of Jews. You have this weird conglomeration of a genuine sense of wanting to protect and liberate Jews 
at the same time mixing that with various racial nationalism, imperialism, and sort of settler colonial ideas that were widespread in the Gentile world around them. And it just turned out to be a really unfortunate combination. Within Zionists, there were more extreme Zionists and more moderate Zionists. And there was even a wing of Zionism that I talk about in the pamphlet. The mainstream of Zionism, even though there were different tendencies you know, by the late 1800s had decided that its objective was to colonize Palestine, largely with Jewish emigres from Europe, and to create the conditions where they could create a state in all of Palestine, some of the Transjordan, and a little bit of Lebanon. But that they also understood that they needed to be at least like Ben-Gurion, who was sort of the leader of the Labour Party and the first prime minister of Israel when it was created in 1948. He was talking before then about they would need to have at least 80% of the Jewish population in the new state of Israel and that it would require getting rid of most of the Palestinian population, what they called a forced transfer to push out an ethnic cleansing of indigenous Palestinians. And so that was the goal of political Zionism, even though there are differences within that group. There was another group. It was a minority group, much smaller, that made themselves distinct from political Zionists, and they called themselves spiritual Zionists. And this would be people like Martin Buber and the head of Hebrew University, Joseph Magnus, and they tried to create organizations that weren't focused on creating a Jewish state that privileged Jews, that displaced or discriminated against Palestinians. They thought that that violated the best of the Jewish prophetic tradition. They instead called for there to be some immigration, Jewish immigration to Palestine to create a growing and very vibrant center for world Judaism in the Holy Land. But they wanted a single state that included both Palestinian and the new immigrants from Europe and elsewhere, a democratic, sort of loosely socialist state that would respect the human rights of all the people who live in Israel-Palestine. And I didn't know that as a child hearing this critique from within Zionism against the mainstream of Zionism was interesting. But from then, I found that there were a number of Jews throughout history who had critiqued the whole project of Zionism long before the state of Israel had even come into existence. And we're going to ask you more about that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind folks that you're listening to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, nordenspiritradio.org. O-R-G, 12 and a half years of our programs out there, free listening and download, and links to guests, so like when you want to track down this pamphlet by Steve Chase on Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights, come to nordenspiritradio.org, click on the link, and you'll get there. But that's true for all of our guests the last 12 and a half years, and there's a place to post comments Two-way communication is the best type place to donate. This is full-time work, and it's supported only by listener donations. So please step forward and make sure it can continue. Media conglomerations have gobbled up more and more, such that something like 90% of our media is controlled by 
only six different corporations. That's horrendous if you want to have an open field of ideas. And so help us maintain those open ideas by supporting Northern Spirit Radio. But even more important, support your local community radio station and your other local media. They're absolutely essential. Again, Steve Chase is here talking about boycott, divestment, and sanctions. We'll get to that as we go on. But you were talking, Steve, about some of this history of Zionism. I wanted to toss in a couple questions right away. Sure. Also, I wanted to mention one of my past guests, her name was Eve Spangler. Oh, I've met Eve. I know her. She's wonderful. She's got a great book called Understanding Israel-Palestine Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. She does an excellent job in that book of giving so much of the Zionist history because she herself is a Jew. One of the accusations that comes against anyone who questions what's happening over in Palestine, Israel, you're either accused of being an anti-Semitic or a self-hating Jew, which is it's a little bit crazy, but raising the questions, and you were just talking historically about some of the Jews who had questioned this Zionist project. Did you want to continue talking about that, Steve? Yeah. The thing I wanted to get out is, one, there's a range of perspectives within the Zionist movement, but then there were also many Jews who considered themselves non-Zionist or anti-Zionist from the early days, from the late 1800s on. And that sort of grouping is, I think, growing at this point. There's a great book by Dov Waxman, who's a political science professor at Northeastern University in Boston, and he wrote a book called Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel. And what he argues is that there have always been four different schools of thought in relationship to Israel. So one is sort of disinterested, and that that was the majority perspective even after World War II within U.S. Jewish community. After 1967, there was a huge expansion of Jewish support, and he breaks down these four groupings as disinterested, devoted, disillusioned, and then dissident. And I was never very disinterested because I got interested in this so early as a child. So I traveled the same path of going from a devoted, ardent Zionist to becoming more critical and very disillusioned, not only about some of the specific policies of Israel, but some of the political ideology of Zionism and the methods, which included a vast amount of terrorism. There's a great book by a guy named Thomas Cherez, called The State of Terror, How Terrorism Created Modern Israel. And he looks at documents not only within the Israeli archives, but the British archives about the almost daily acts of terror by elements of the pro-Zionist community in Palestine, but also in Europe. It's a very detailed report of incident after incident over many years. So the more I learned the more I moved from being a devoted, ardent Zionist to seeing the myths of Zionism and some of the reality, and then I became more and more disillusioned. And lately, in the last couple of years, I've moved more in the dissident camp of wanting to actively stand with people who are opposing the oppression of Palestinians by the Israel state, hugely supported by the United States. We are the major enabler. And we also have a similar history of settler colonialism and violence against various minorities. 
Actually, I figured that almost every country has that at one point in their past. It's just a question of how recent it is. We can look at our history and see how we exterminated the natives who were living on the North American continent as our culture moved in from Europe. And so we can actually see it pretty clearly. It's less clear when that happened in the area that's called France or England or something. That's It's far enough back that we can critique it. Yeah, and I think that's important that the challenge in Israel-Palestine of dealing with the consequences of over 100 years of settler colonialism and great power imperialism supporting the rights of one group over the rights of another. So, Mark, I think you're very right that this kind of mistreatment of other people, in this case, the pre-state Zionist mistreatment of Palestinians and then the Israeli the state of Israel's mistreatment of Palestinian is real. It needs to be addressed, but it's not unique. There are so many cases, including our own history in the United States and elsewhere, of communities assuming that they have more rights than others and they can dominate other communities. So there's nothing unique about this, but it's still meaningful. And as a U.S. citizen who used to subscribe to a Zionist outlook, I feel it's my responsibility to speak up, to expand the range of debate, to bring up what historians are learning about this past, what is happening currently. It all seems very, very important to me. And in part, it's because the United States bears an enormous amount of responsibility for the dispossession, occupation, and discrimination against Palestinians in Israel-Palestine because of the massive amount of military aid that the U.S. has given historically to the state of Israel, the massive amount of cover, diplomatic cover, and in the U.N., because the international consensus for decades has been there should be a two-state solution with East Jerusalem being the capital for Palestine, Western Jerusalem being the capital for Israel, using the 1967 armistice borders as the rough borders of the two nations. And that's been the international consensus for a long, long time. And the U.S. has used its position in the Security Council to keep moves for implementing that consensus for a long time. And so I've become active in the Quaker Palestine-Israel network, and in D.C. I've become supportive of the D.C. chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is one of the fastest-growing Jewish groups in the United States that supports the BDS movement that says because of Jewish values of justice that Israel and the United States need to change their policies towards the Palestinians. And they support the goals of BDS, which include the ending the occupation, getting rid of the apartheid wall. So that's sort of one area. The other is full equality for Palestinian citizens who live within Israel. And then the third goal of the BDS movement is the right of return for Palestinians. Close to three-quarters of a million Palestinians were driven away from their property in what became Israel 
So those are the goals of the BDS movement. They're the goals of Jewish Voice for Peace. I share those goals and think that moving in that direction leads to a greater chance of a real just settlement and the creation of a democratic and equal reality and settlement in Israel-Palestine. Way back at the beginning when you were talking about the whole Zionist idea, you said it was primarily promulgated by secular Jews. Yeah. This is always one of those very tricky things to talk about because there are certainly a whole lot of people who identify as secular Jews. Maybe it's kind of like the Christians who maybe go to church on Easter and Christmas but otherwise don't have much to do with it. I, mm-hmm. You know, culturally, there's so many wonderful things that come out of Judaism. So the original founders, you're saying, were secular Jews. Is Israel a religious state or is it not? I'm, I'm, it's hard to sort this out. Is it just if you have the genetics you qualify or what is the bit? Well, that's an interesting thing because there are some who believe it should be religiously Jewish. I mean, the Orthodox Jewish community was initially very much either indifferent or opposed to Zionism feeling that it was very theologically flawed. Now, many Orthodox Jews, perhaps the majority in the U.S. and the majority in Israel, and I don't know about other places, are actually supportive of the Zionist objective of a Jewish state in Palestine in as much territory as possible with as few Palestinians in it as possible. So there's been a pretty big shift there. But initially, the main leaders of Zionism were secular European Jews that actually had, if you read some of their statements, an incredible amount of contempt for traditional Jews in Europe. You know, it sounds like anti-Semitic literature. There was a tremendous amount of contempt. But the other thing is that the Zionists, at the time, more sort of mainstream Zionist at this time, they didn't see Jews as people who followed Judaism. They saw it in genetic terms. They were racialists. You know, as much as the Balfour Declaration that came out from the British government in 1917 saying the British government supports the establishment of a Jewish homeland within Palestine. That was a big step forward for the Zionists, but at the same time, the Zionists pushed back and tried to get language in the, that said, because that, the Balfour Declaration talks about the Jewish people, and they wanted the Jewish race to be in there, and they didn't want you know the homeland being mentioned, they wanted a state being mentioned. But this was ethno-nationalism. And so the view was sort of genetic versus right now under the law in Israel, any person who can demonstrate some genetic basis for being considered part of the Jewish race is allowed to immigrate to Israel-Palestine. However, if you're a Palestinian who had lived there for generations and were dispossessed in 1948 and kicked out and not allowed back to your businesses or your homes or your farmland, you're not allowed back in. You know, many of the early Jewish critics of Zionism, and certainly after Nazism rose, said that there are some parallels to fascist thinking and parallels to sort of racist ethno-nationalism. And I think it's really interesting that Robert Spencer, who's a white supremacist in the United States, has said, all we want for the U.S. 
is what the Jews got in Israel. And they want genetically white Americans to have the same relationship to anybody that doesn't fit that that Israel has. And so Israel is now being held up as white supremacists, many of whom are anti-Semitic, as the model of governance that they want to see, because whether or not they like Jews, they like the idea of saying that there's one racial group that should dominate others. And the term apartheid, the first time I was really consciously aware of it being applied to Israel was when Jimmy Carter was speaking about it and used it. He wrote a book about it. Yeah. How accurate is the description? I'm not sure what apartheid legally is defined as. Does it apply to that situation? I think it does. But if apartheid is seen as purely what existed in South Africa, there are some differences. But Apartheid has been defined legally by the United Nations, and if you read those definitions, I think it actually does fit the current situation in Israel-Palestine. And the key focus there is keeping people apart, racial superiority in terms of rights and privileges and discrimination. We know that the occupation is violating international law and certainly creating the settler communities within occupied Palestine, that is a violation of international law. So there's a whole slew of things that if you take together, it does fit the international description. You know, some people talk about apartheid, some people talk about settler colonialism, some people just talk about discrimination and violations of international law. I think all of them, to a a strong degree, apply the situation. I think one of the key differences is the minority white government in South Africa was dependent on the labor of the black majority. And Israel has created a situation where it is not that dependent on Palestinians for cheap labor. Long term, the hope, the vision is that Palestinians will, by whatever means, be displaced and leave Palestine forever. And so that creates a different dynamic. And I actually think that may be one of the reasons that international support for nonviolent initiatives like the BDS movement will be helpful because there's some limits on the non-cooperation that the Palestinian community can do in Israel-Palestine. Not that they're completely devoid of lovers of change, but they're not necessary for the survival of the way of life of Israel that the oppressed blacks in South Africa were because the white minority was completely dependent on their labor. And so what's happened in Israel, a right-wing militaristic government that actively displaces, dispossesses, occupies, and discriminates against Palestinians in Israel-Palestine which is really hard to wrap our minds around since we have the idea and fairly reasonably based idea that Israelis are the democracy in the area. Yeah, but under the Jim Crow South, the South was considered a democracy as well by some. That was argued for. But when you consider that in Israel-Palestine, close to half the population has no meaningful vote, has no meaningful citizenship rights, 20% of the Israeli population are Palestinians, but they're second-class citizens and they have less rights. And Israel actually makes a distinction. Everybody's a citizen, but then you also get a card that names your nationality. So Palestinians are citizens, 
but they don't have the nationality Jewish on their card. And by having nationality Jewish on your identity card, you are afforded many more privileges. Clearly, the view that you have of Zionism now is much more critical than what fit when you called yourself a Zionist Quaker. Yeah. Maybe it's not 100% clear to people how you got to that point. I mean, for me, part of what gave me permission to have more critical opinions was the fact that, you know, I've talked to people like Eve Spangler, or you quote in your pamphlet, you quote Maxine Kaufman Lacosta, who talks about Palestinians and Israeli voices. So I've heard a lot of voices that are critical. You mentioned earlier, by the way, self-hating Jews, Jews who were critical of the policy about Israel, about Zionism, were sometimes called self-hating Jews. I'm pretty sure that's a term that doesn't work for either you or me. Yes, and I, I mean, that kind of lambasting people, I think the goal is to shut down debate and critical thought. In my own life, I did the same thing. I have to say I am fully responsible of dismissing any criticism of Israel or Zionism as anti-Semitism. I did that for years, and I regret it now. I think it's a moral and intellectual failing. What started to shift for me is when Jewish friends of mine who had lived in Israel or visited it for extended periods of time were coming back, and I'd have discussions with them because I was really interested in what was going on in Israel, and they came back very ambivalent. They liked the idea of the world should have a safe haven for Jews, that there should be, you know, a strong, vibrant Jewish community in the Holy Land. They loved all of that, which I love. But they were saying that the level of militarism, the dramatic shift to the right of the Israeli government, and the very racist justification for Israeli policy towards the Palestinians were deeply troubling to them. So many of my Jewish friends were going through the transition from devoted to disillusioned, and some of them went on to what Wax Dovman calls dissidents, where they were working for the two-state solution for a long time, were working for rights of Palestinian, anti-occupation, creating coalitions with Palestinians. And it was that shift among my friends who I couldn't label anti-Semitic. That was the opening crack in my own thinking. And that's where I started the slow shift from being an ardent Zionist to now seeing myself as sort of a post-Zionist who actually has a strong critique of political Zionism and certainly a strong critique about how the state of Israel has engaged in dispossession and destruction of like over 500 Palestinian villages where they threw the people out and wouldn't let them back. The second-class citizen problem within Israel and then certainly a 50-year-old occupation that now is having more and more Jewish settlements and Jewish-only roads and Jewish-only communities being created in occupied Palestine that I've slowly come to realize this is not what I signed up for. So speaking of that, let's talk about the specifics of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. There was a point in the pamphlet, Steve, when you you refer to Martin Luther King Jr., 
the question about the bus boycott and whether this was ethical. And for me, that just strikes me as bizarre that someone would be questioning the ethicality of a boycott. I mean, that seems to me the most plausible. It's like, I'm not hurting you. I'm just not enabling you. So that seems simple to me. Martin Luther King was confronted by other pastors that his support for boycott was somehow immoral. So what is this in terms of the Israel-Palestine situation? That's a really good question, and I think there's two things that we can break it out. Is Certain boycott campaigns, you could say, are immoral because of their objective. And so the Nazi boycott of Jewish businesses in Germany, that was aimed at hurting a targeted minority, and you know it was racist in intent. So the objectives matter. And part of my concern about, well, can I support the BDS movement is I had to become, I had to learn more and more and then figure out, yes, there is an unjust situation. So once I got that, boycotting to end that seems legitimate to me. But some people, and this included Martin Luther King for a time, believe that there's just something so coercive about boycotting that the very means are unethical. And he had doubts about that, and it was only sort of with the encouragement of various organizers and other ministers that he got strong enough to support the boycott, and it really transformed him. It changed his whole life and his whole view of the world. It was amazing. But I tell that story in the pamphlet about how he was nervous about that, because a lot of people are nervous about it, particularly You know, right now, the BDS movement, there's a strong movement to criminalize it in the United States. There are laws against being even thinking that you're supportive of it. You know, in Israel, you can't enter Israel if they decide you support BDS. They have established a law that they could refuse you entrance into Israel-Palestine. Their 50 governors have written a letter saying that they believe in the criminalization of anyone who attempts to support the boycott. New York, for example, Governor Cuomo has said, we will boycott any business that boycotts production in in the settlements in occupied territory. They would not allow the state government of New York to do business with a firm that decided it wasn't going to enable the occupation, for example. That's something I think we need to push back on. So then the question is, is, are the means appropriate? And he came to realize that this is a powerful tool of the oppressed and concerned people to withdraw their support and enabling. I love that word that you used, the enabling of an injustice going on and on and on. You think about South Africa boycotts were hugely important and the divestment campaign was hugely important in ending that injustice. So we have to be careful in this country where something is so unconstitutional as there are more and more state laws and there are being some national laws proposed that criminalize people engaging in boycott and divestment actions, either directly targeting Israel policy or some of them are so broad as any kind of boycott. Steve Chase is talking about boycott, divestment, and sanctions. 
a Quaker Zionist rethinks Palestinian rights. It's a little pamphlet called a Pendle Hill pamphlet. I got a link on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Let's get into the meat of what boycott, divestment, and sanctions means in terms of the Israel-Palestine stuff. What are we divesting in? What are we boycotting? What are we sanctioning? What has specifically happened? And has it been successful at all? Is this a big international movement? Give me some idea of what this really means. Okay. I think I mentioned before, but in case I didn't, this emerged out of a Palestinian call from civil society with like 170 groups and, you know, a broad, broad base within the Palestinian community calling on the international community, largely civil society, but also welcoming other governments to engage in whatever kinds of boycotts, divestment campaigns, or sanctions that would help encourage Israel to change its policies to follow international law and respect the human rights of Palestinians. And in it, they made three goals. One is end the occupation, create genuine equality between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel. And then the third one was to allow the right of the Palestinians who were dispossessed and pushed out of their homes and farms in 1948 during the creation of the state of Israel and not allowed back and were militarily killed. You know, they were forced back or assassinated if they tried to return to their homes. So those are the three goals. Now, in that, people around the world who have listened to the Palestinian call figure out what makes sense in their situation. So, for example, some cultural groups, some academic associations have said, we will boycott participating Israeli universities that are implicated in Israel policy or complicit or support Israeli policy. They make a distinction between, we'll talk with individual academics and things within Israel, but institutionally, we're going to not participate. And some entertainers, just in the same way, international entertainers refuse to go to South Africa. There are instances of that kind of cultural boycott happening. The pop singer Lord recently dropped going and doing a concert as part of the boycott. So you have academic groups, you have international labor rights groups that have participated, you have religious groups, for example, in the United States. The Presbyterians have debated and done active learning about the situation in Israel-Palestine and have come out in support of key elements of BDS. And some people will support some elements of BDS, and not others. So, for example, some people are looking at products produced within Israel, the sort of the green line of Israel, not what's considered the occupied territories, and they will boycott products produced there. Most broad-based campaigns have been against products that have been produced in the occupied territories in the Jewish settlements, because those are most directly in direct violation of international law. So you have different groups around the world debating this, discussing this, passing resolutions, and some of them picking campaigns around specific, like SodaStream, created products where you could create fizzy water, and they were producing in the occupied territories. So they were targeted by several groups around the world, 
and they moved their production out of the occupied territories into Israel proper. And at that point, some of those groups stopped boycotting Soda Stream because it got them out of the settlements, and that was considered a victory. Other people feel like, well, we should still go because there's still elements of complicity with Israel policy that are objected to by the BDS campaign. So there's different tactical responses, and different groups can pick and choose what part of it that they think is meaningful for them and they'll support. Various national church groups, I mentioned the Presbyterians, have divested of stock of companies that are complicit with the Israeli occupation and things like that. So it has grown in terms of the number of people who endorse it, the number of people around the world and organizations that engage in some aspect of it. But it's not sort of a three-point plan. You kind of have to do your own homework and figure out within the framework of BDS, what do you want to support? I just saw a short video interview with Noam Chomsky, who's been a longstanding Jewish critic of both Zionism and the state of Israel's policies towards Palestine certainly supports the rights of anybody to engage in boycott, divestment, and sanctions activities. But he makes some distinctions about he's not for the cultural boycott of universities, but he supports the boycott and divestment and sanctions against production in the occupied territories. So he's somebody that looks at the BDS call and picks a part of it that he can support and engages in that. Are there other companies, organizations, structures? I mean, I think CAT, as in Caterpillar, they're one of the ones that have been boycotted. That's true. There was a French company that was going to create a public transit sort of railway system around Jerusalem. but The design of it was going to be to annex and incorporate and displace Palestinians from East Jerusalem, and it was sort of designed for that purposes. And so there was international pushback against this French company, and they withdrew from the project. So there's numerous examples. One of the things I would suggest is a great resource is the American Friends Service Committee has a database on economic activism that includes boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. And they also track specific campaigns or possible targets for boycott and divestment actions who are engaged in ways that enable Israel to continue its policies against Palestinians. That is one good source of information if, like, a local group is thinking about, well, what could we start doing, or a national group thinking about, well, do we want to have a particular campaign? Go to their database and look at examples of successful use of BDS in Israel and some companies that might be really good strategic targets for new campaigns. We'll have a link to that database on the AFSC.org website. Just come to org. So I think we have to tie things up, Steve. There's maybe a last few comments that we should make about BDS. My observation of BDS certainly is parallel to what was happening in the 1980s about addressing apartheid in South Africa. Was there equivalent of BDS in the U.S. to get rid of slavery? I mean, that's our big national crime that is part of our history that carries forward and somewhat taints our society. Yeah. Before the Civil War, for example, I mean, like Quakers, you know, which is my faith tradition, 
by the time of the Revolutionary War had decided that slavery was a sin and started withdrawing support from it. And I would say at least 10% of the Religious Society of Friends of Quakers were boycotting slave goods. And so they were active abolitionists and they were promoting the boycott of goods that were produced by slave labor. So, you know, that's an example. The Montgomery bus boycott is an example. The sit-ins in 1960 in Nashville for the desegregation of the lunch counters in Nashville and ultimately all public institutions, commercial or otherwise, that ended up sparking a boycott of downtown Nashville stores that pressured the stores to start saying, if our doors are open and we'll take your money for purchase of some things, we have to be equitable about it. And that led to the desegregation. So economic activism like this has been done for a long time and has many times over proved practical as a tool for creating positive social change. So there's a whole lot that's going on now. It parallels other good movements of the past. There's a number of sites where you could go to to get further information. The AFSC site we just mentioned. There's also a site called bdsmovement.net. We'll have a few of these links on northernspiritradio.org so you can follow up. And one of the things maybe you want to do just to fully engage with this whole idea and why it's so compelling is to just read Steve Chase's book. Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights. I'll have a link so you can find where to get that if you're interested. And talk to Steve Chase. It's been five years since I interviewed him last, and that's way too long. He's a constant force of movement. Right now, he's with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, which is in Washington, D.C. He served for a number of years at Antioch College, New England, as part of advocacy of social justice and sustainability. He's a good resource to go to anytime, but he's got a day job, so remember to keep your queries to a reasonable level. Steve, thank you so much for writing Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, for confronting your own internalized limits and opening them to justice. I think it's such an important model for us all to follow. And thanks for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciated the time. There are two other interviews with Steve Chase and several links to his pamphlet and to the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict and more on northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.